Listener Production. I think the most important thing is to start before you're ready. I'm a big believer that readiness is a mirage. And so it's challenging yourself to go, I'm actually have everything within me right here, right now to start being the change that I want to be. I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe. And this is Fast Track. We often hear people say, I want to make a difference, or I really like to help change the world, or I want to be a better human. It's a hope and an intention of so many of us to leave a legacy and to make a difference. Doing it and knowing how to do it is the topic of this episode of Fast Track. My guest today is Holly Ransom. Holly is an expert in disruption and future leadership. She founded a strategic consultancy, Emergent, and they make effective change happen. And really excitingly, she's the author of her first book called The Leading Edge. Dream big, spark change, and become the leader the world needs you to be. Holly was named one of Australia's 100 most influential women by the Australian Financial Review, and she's widely recognised as one of the world's top female keynote speakers. She's delivered a peace charter to the Dalai Lama. She's interviewed Barack Obama on stage. She was Sir Richard Branson's nominee for the Smart List of Future Game Changers to Watch in 2017. And she was awarded the US Embassy's Eleanor Roosevelt Award for Leadership Excellence in 2019. She's recently completed a Master's of Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School. And as a Fulbright Scholar, Holly is also a Senior Fellow at the Melbourne School of Government. She's a founder of the award-winning Energy Disruptors Global Energy Summit and the youngest ever female director of an AFL club, Port Adelaide. Wow. Well, Holly has spent a decade also studying leadership. Holly, welcome to Fast Track. Thanks so much for having me, Margie. It's great to be here. You're an incredibly impressive human and you've had an incredibly impressive career. Where did your passion for leadership and change come from? Well, thank you for a very generous introduction uh, to begin with. Uh, That was very humbling. I think when I go back to, and it's interesting writing a book because you go through this process of doing a lot of introspection and reflection. And for me, it all starts with this really formative moment. And I always think there's something that the earliest memory each of us has tells us. It's a signpost, it's a guide, or it often links back to passions or causes or things that end up giving us purpose or becoming part of our life's crusade. And for me, my earliest memory is is shopping with my grandmother. And my grandmother is my biggest source of inspiration and uh, just a remarkable woman. She's 90 years old this year, been married to my grandpa 70 years. And we were in uh, the shopping centre one day and a man in front of me, uh, in front of us, in the shopping centre line, who would have been, he looked like a seven-foot giant in my head as a five or or six-year-old, was tearing into the poor shop assistant who was a teenage girl, like she wanted to melt into the floor. She'd evidently give him the wrong change. And this man was was sort of letting her know about it quite aggressively. Before I knew it, my five-foot-tall grandmother had inserted herself between this giant and this poor girl on the checkout and pointed her finger up at him and said, how dare you talk to that young lady like that? You apologise. And I just remember this moment of just like deer in the headlights, looking at what's going on, going, oh, my gosh. Grandma proceeded like nothing had happened. This guy sheepishly grabbed his things, mumbled sorry and rushed out of the store. 
grandma bought, you know, the, the bread and milk and proceeded like nothing had happened, then realised I wasn't holding her hand anymore. I was still wetted back in the line going, what am I watching? And I said to her, I said, grandma, that's so brave. And she said to me, she said, honey, if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. And I didn't realise till much later in life what my grandmother had given me then and, and what inadvertently she'd also sparked in my career because when I look at every decision, every choice point, there's something to do with not walking past something. But I think that bred for me a, an awareness of what I was looking for in the world. And I think the second thing that comes with that is then this hunger, the curiosity to want to ask questions in those moments. Why is that happening? How come we're doing it that way? What if we did this? And this kind of curiosity and that want for experimentation, I think, came from that preparedness to stop in those moments and then that hunger or that responsibility I felt to try and ask better questions and do something about it. So I owe the, the curiosity journey I've been on ever since to, to grandma in that moment and that gift that she gave me and the example that she set. I thought the, the most important thing was she didn't say it, she did it. And I think back so many times in my life, watching her and watching other leaders I admire, it's not what they said, it's what they lived and breathed and did when it would have been easier to be silent, to choose to uh, not act. And I, I think that's so I love powerful. that story. She also made it safe for you to witness. So she didn't hide you away from it. Like she, she exposed you to this moment and didn't make it dramatic. Great point. So I really love that idea of your association with that being really positive where it could have been quite scary. And I think it just told me as well, Maggie, it's such a good point that she didn't shy me away from that. But also there was something about the fact my grandmother, who was just at that moment in my life, my grandmother, chose in that moment to do something. She didn't have a title. She wasn't running a company X big. She wasn't leading a movement. She didn't have X number of followers. And part of what I think sometimes I get uh, a little bit frustrated about is the way that the literature around leadership has kind of removed this agency that each and every one of us had. And I think it's so important that we realise our actions in small moments are as important as big movements. Yeah. And that we do, we make, we signal to the world with every choice that we make, whether we step up, step in, the values that we operate with, so much. And I think that was really important too, that moment of at a checkout, not walking past it, just like you wouldn't in a large organisation if something's going wrong, just like you wouldn't if it was, you know, you were leading um, a community organisation or something, that each and every one of us every day has those moments we need to lean into. That's fantastic. So, Holly, I'm often asked this question. I want to ask you, the current state of leadership in the workplace, particularly, we could do politics, but I think we need to focus on the workplace at the moment because we don't have that long. <laughs> what's missing for us in terms of that workplace leadership and, and what's strong? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting is it's very hard to paint the leadership landscape with, with one brush. And so I think we've got some great points of light with leaders who are really trying to embody and embolden a new way. And then we've definitely got people that are kind of fixatedly sticking to the status quo. And when I think about the, the kind of people who are leading the new way and the characteristics of the organisations that for the last 10 years have been topping, you know, the best places in the world to work and a most engaged workplace cultures, I think to begin with, and I know this is a topic that you resonate with, that purpose piece is absolutely paramount, that notion that you stand for something that's bigger than the bottom line. And importantly, I think, and we're seeing this rapidly evolving, you know, when we look at social movements around the world and just the increasing expectation and accountability that's coming on corporates, that expectation that you live it, you don't just talk it. Mm. Uh, and there's a lot of people who've been quite good at making the statements, but not so good at the follow through. And I think that 
that intensity we've got with making sure people aren't greenwashing, rainbow washing, whatever type of washing we're talking about. I think that's really important. I think the second thing is the style of leadership. You know, we built a model in the industrial age that was designed for that type of organisation and the factories that maximise widget outputs. And that was a world that had lots of hierarchy and typically had a command and control style of leadership. Now, I just do not believe that that's what people want to show up and work for. And so in an age where we've got a much looser relationship to our people, we need a style of leadership that's not about pushing orders down a hierarchy, it's about pulling people to follow. And part of that's around a vision that lights them up and the ability to communicate that in a way that resonates with others. But part of that's also about the culture that you're creating. You mentioned before safety, you know, that notion of psychological safety, that ability to show up as all that I am and to contribute and ask questions and challenge and take risks. You know, that's critical. That ability to to feel truly valued as part of your workplace and doing diversity and inclusion properly. You know, those sorts of factors, I think, are really important. And that empowerment piece, that idea that we are creating guardrails, but allowing people to show up and contribute to the best of their ability I think they're just some of the factors that we're starting to see take on an increasing importance. Um, And part of that acceleration is happening because of technology taking away a lot of what the old world did. You know, if you can, if you can standardize something now, you can automate it. And so when we look at, when we're talking about a knowledge economy and the human factors that are going to be increasingly critical, we're talking about creativity. We're talking about empathy, the stuff the robots can't out-human us on. Uh, and so we need cultures that allow for that to come to the fore. And that's a really different leadership and management style to what's gone before. Fantastic. So so in your book, you talk about three principles, a mindset, method and mastery. So to help us sort of realise a full potential as a leader, you, you focused on those three. Just tell me a little bit about each of those, mindset, method and mastery. Sure. So the book is split into two halves. So the first is about leading self, because until you can lead yourself, you can't lead others. And the second half is all about leading others in whatever way you choose to define that. I think that was something we already touched on, whether that's your household, whether that's your team at work, whether you're running an organisation, a community, a country, whatever it might be. And then within that, the commonalities you touched on there is this mindset, method and mastery. So for me, mindset is all about that frame that we take, you know, the attitude that we bring, the choices that we make, the way that we tell our story, the way that we communicate, connect with others. So everything that's to do with that element of things, um, really talking about like how we handle criticism, the resilience, all our mental factors comes into the mindset piece. In method, we're really talking about where the rubber starts to hit the road. And for me, one of the observations I would make quite often when we talk about whether it's leadership or innovation is we often over-index towards the single-ditch efforts or focus on trying to find an alluring silver bullet because it's a really sexy idea. And in doing that, we underestimate the power of what we repeatedly do. Those small habits that have such a powerful ability to change the course and deliver new outcomes. And so that section on method is all about habits and the habits that serve us in 2021 and beyond. So stuff like getting comfortable being uncomfortable, the notion of how we actually live and breathe the topics of diversity inclusion, how we solve problems critically, how we handle crucial critical conversations, um, preparedness and the discipline that comes with that. And then in mastery, for me, that's really the stuff that's almost like the continuous improvement element. It's the piece that allows us to go from working in stuff to working on stuff. It's the ability to think about how we continue 
Uh, that whole notion that, you know, standing still is sort of falling behind. Yeah. These things are the things that keep you on the edge. So there's strategies that are kind of there for self-renewal and to continue to push the envelope in whatever way you're choosing to aim your efforts. So if a reader was to take away one or two things from your book, what would it be? Ooh, I think at a high level, I mean, it's a, it's a smattering of lessons, ideas and tools. So what I hope is that people can read even the chapter headings and go, that's what I need right now. And you can jump in as a segment to that, whether you're wanting to get skills around learning, unlearning, relearning, whether you're wanting to jump into EQ, whether you're talking about leading systems, whatever it might be. But I think at a high level, I really hope that this can change and challenge the existing conversation around leadership in two ways. I think when you do the lit review, as I spent a fair bit of time doing on leadership, it's pretty one-dimensional who the storytellers and who the stories of leadership are that we lionise. It's typically kind of a uh, white male, Navy SEAL, sports coach or Jack Welsh type figure Uh, or Silicon Valley kind of success story bro culture. And that is not the diversity of examples. That is not the diversity of people that we need to be showing as leaders. So I really hope in the 60 plus case studies in this book that features, you know, equal gender split, 20 plus countries, every generation of leader from all across different sectors at all different stages, people can see themselves in that. And in that part, I hope there can be this. The second hope would be that it can serve as a rallying cry and a toolkit for everyone who's looking around at the landscape right now and going, you know what, there must be better and I want to be a part of better. Because I think, you know, you touched on business before, we can talk about politics, we can talk about a raft of situations right now where certainly, you know, the world that I hope that we are passing on to the next generation looks better and different to the one that we've got right now. So for me, it's the hope that everyone can see themselves in the stories and then take on the challenge to be the change that they want to see in the world. Fantastic. Holly, what advice do you have for people starting out in their careers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the best bit of advice that I got early in my career was that it's more important the people that you work with and for than the actual work that you're doing. And so being so intentional about who you are choosing to surround yourself with, both in terms of, you know, the leaders that you get the experience and opportunity to work for, the culture that they create, the way that you're empowered, the opportunity you get to collaborate, you name it. And I think within that, probably the most powerful thing that I got introduced well earlier than I understood the word to was mentoring. Uh, right. And I know, you know, as, as someone who's a coach, you're equally passionate about mentoring. And, and for me, that term we often need to re- reclaim for a lot of people because they have a lot of baggage attached. Everyone's had a bad experience at some point with some kind of automated mentoring program that didn't quite work. You know, the thing I challenge people on is to, go and seek out learning conversations and to really think about the learning, not just being what you do on the job, but everything that you wrap around yourself to support your own growth and development and being really intentional in going and seeking out leaders of all sorts of different ilks, people that you admire and asking them, explaining why you want their time, but asking them to share from their knowledge and experience. It's probably been the single most important contributor to my growth and development as a leader and as a person. So on your career, what's your greatest achievement? What do you feel the most proud of so far? 
Ooh, good question. I think hands down it would be what we collectively accomplished in 2014 when I was lucky enough to be given the opportunity by the Prime Minister to lead the, the G20 Youth Summit. So it was an interesting platform to be given because uh, when you do the research, so for those who aren't familiar, the G20 is sort of the 20 most economically powerful countries in the world. So about 75% of world trade and 85% of world economic activity. There's also about 1.5 billion young people across those 20 countries. And when you're coming into that responsibility, you know, we have this crazy outlandish goal of becoming the first youth summit to ever influence the world leaders agenda and wanting to get up this issue of youth unemployment, which uh, was this unified point of hurt. When we looked at what's the common issue that young people across the world have, it was youth unemployment was three to four times the adult unemployment rate in every one of those 20 nations. And it was really challenging because, you know, we weren't, to begin with, we often weren't invited to the table. Uh, there was no kind of real framework of young voices necessarily being involved before. And it was this unbelievable effort of all these volunteer young people that we had leading their 20 nations, this incredible collaboration we had with business and civil society, great support from so many senior bureaucrats with a few challenges. You know, we had a prime minister that year who didn't have enough time in the whole year to meet with young people. We became the first nation hosted the G20 who the prime minister refused to meet with young people. So very unfortunate first. So we had all these challenges where things that you'd hope would happen that would might maybe facilitate when you're playing a constructive game that happening. And so the, the creativity and the ingenuity and the persistence that we had to be able to in November um, at Brisbane when the G20 summit happened to sit there and see not only youth unemployment in that leader's declaration, but to have gotten to a point where all 20 countries had youth unemployment um, metrics within their growth strategies was a phenomenal achievement. And I think that's still probably the thing I'm proudest of. And Holly, before we sadly have to finish this conversation, because got a feeling we could talk for a very long time about all things leadership and career and what's possible for the world and how we might change it. I'm just wondering if you've got any actionable steps or ideas for people who feel that they'd like to create change or find their purpose in the world. Are there any last inspiring words for the people out there just thinking how we might make the change happen? Yeah, look, great question. I think the most important thing is to start before you're ready, which is an idea I talk about in the book. And I'm a big believer that readiness is a mirage. And so it's challenging yourself to go, I'm actually have everything within me right here, right now to start being the change that I want to be. And so the the tool I'd offer to listeners is to think about how you break down uh, your inspiration, your idea, whatever it is you want to put energy behind into a 24-7-1 framework. So in the next 24 hours, what's the little baby step that you're going to take towards making that impact, that change come real? It needs to be so simple, it's inexcusable you couldn't get it done within 24 hours. So it could just be reaching out to someone who's done something similar and asking if they have a virtual coffee catch-up with you or something. Next step, seven days, you've got to take a slightly bigger action step. So maybe you have that conversation, maybe you take a uh, half a day or an hour out of your time and sketch out your thinking, whatever it is, it's bigger than the 24, but you've got a whole seven days to get it done. And then finally, one month, bigger action step again. So maybe you send your one pager that you've written out, sketched in your notebook to a few friends and start getting feedback or start pitching it to people and, and getting you know their response and their ideas and piggybacking that on. Whatever it is, bigger than the 24 and the 7, you've got a whole month. 
And then use that as your way alongside, I think one of the biggest barriers to making change is our busyness and all the demands that are on us already, making it very hard to get bandwidth and freedom to be able to try the new or the do the thing that we have, you know, passionately burning inside of us. So I really encourage people to use that. And at the end of the month, roll that forward, do another 24-7 and keep using that as the way you breathe a little bit of life into that plan you've got for the change you want to be. Great habits and great momentum. So Holly Ransom, thank you so much for sharing your energy and your inspiration about how we can all change and be better leaders together. So thank you so much. Great pleasure to meet you. Thanks so much, Margie. Pleasure to meet you too. Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley. Producer, Tina Matalov. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.